Hi, Tao. Good evening, Anand. Uh, very nice to see you. Nice to see you too. Uh, so today my guest is Theodore Gabriel Krenig. He is full professor of OR, Transportation and Logistics and holds the Chair on Intelligent Logistics and Transportation Systems Planning in the School of Management at UCAM in Canada. He is also adjunct professor in the Department of Computer Science and OR at the Université de Montréal and senior scientist at CIRHEL where he's director of the Intelligent Transportation Systems Lab. Tao is a member of the Royal Society of Canada, and in 2006, he received the Merit Award of the Canadian OR Society. He co-founded two important conferences in the fields of transportation and logistics, namely Tristan and Odysseus. His main research interests are in network, integer and combinatorial optimization, meta heuristics, and parallel computing applied to the planning and management of complex systems. Tell published almost 300 scientific papers and chapters and has an impressive age index of 77, according to Google Scholar. He also supervised over 160 graduate students and postdoctoral fellows. Tell, it's such an honor to have you here. Thank you so much. Uh, how are you? I'm fine. Uh, thank you very much for actually doing it. It's the community should uh, actually be very thankful for building memories in a sense. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, so I think some people don't know this, but you're actually from Romania. Yes, I was born in Romania a couple of months back. Uh, and in fact, I did live in Romania until I was uh, 17 and a half, something like that. Um, born in the capital city. Um, and raised there and uh, went to school there and uh, it was uh, an interesting time in a sense uh, uh, politically speaking i was living in a dictatorship mm -hmm. country uh, it was a communist country very uh, harsh it went it was bad before it went worse after i was in a kind of a little bliss period um so uh, i didn't feel as much but i knew because uh several in the family went to prison before and uh, my mother was worried that my father would go there as well so mm -hmm. we were we were in a sense in the op informal opposition because there was no such thing at the time and this is eventually what also was one of the reasons why but i am Canada. Yeah, but how that influenced you when growing up? Well, uh, one, you learn quite early to shut up, uh, especially uh, learning that actually walls have ears and that you have to be careful and that your parents teach you that very, very early. You also, uh, you have a little bit of a career kind of choices and uh, there is a little story about, uh, you know, my, my, my parents, you know, like a kid, you just grow up and you want to be everything from, I don't know, a, a fireman to a cowboy to uh, the president of the world. And then at one point around uh, eight years, so I, I think it was like their second grade, my father asked me one day again, what, what do you 
what are you wanting now to become? And I said, well, my, 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 I would like to be a diplomat and an international uh, diplomacy and uh, international law. And then my father looked at me and said, okay, but you know that for that you have to be a member of the Communist Party. And then he added to the smile, you, you better go science because you're very good in science or continue in science. <laughs> and fundamentally what I did, I was old enough to understand that nah, 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 that was not a very good. So in a sense, you have that. So your family uh, did not uh, agree with the uh, regime? No, no, uh, certainly not. And uh, But again, uh, I was sufficiently good at school. Actually, I was good in school that I was not really bothered. I mean, but you had a, a, a course of political science, in a sense, every year, and it was for a full year. So it was, uh, uh, you feel it around, and actually you had to be part of the movement. They, If you are in the top 10%, they enrolled you automatically in the Young Pioneers or in that, in this. When the leader died, you were there to be, uh, so it's, uh, it, it, it you knew it, you knew it. it. It was not innocence at all. And uh, then you, as you grow older, you, you understand the hardships and the, the fact, the penuries. I mean, you don't, you know, what can you eat? And fundamentally the whole family tries to find stuff for all the family. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you, you, I mean, it was never the, the, the how would I say? Well, it was not poverty, but we are, it was a, hard life on, on many on many sides. Oh, did your parents have higher education? My parents, both of them went to university. My mother, <laughs> my mother, she, 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 she was an artist, actually, and in course, she, she wrote a lot. And once she came to Canada, she actually started to paint what she wanted all her life. And uh, but when she was very young, my, my grandfather told her, you can do whatever you like in life, but it was the end of the world. But you have to have a job and you have to have a something that you will carry you through all your life. Mm -hmm. So she actually went to the uh, business school and uh, to have she to, to have a statistics uh, and a diploma in business. And she hated it all her life, but she made her a very good uh, was a very good position for her until she came to Canada. Mm -hmm. My father went to the university as well. He, he well, he, now he's retired, but he was a geologist, geograph, and uh, he uh, he worked. He was a job in an institute in in the capital city, but he was lucky enough to to be able to to walk to go in the countryside, uh, supervise uh, works, and meet meet the people he, he he loved it and actually that was what a, an extraordinary opportunity when we came here because with the big works on the hydroelectric uh dams and and centrals up in the north he was managing he managed to actually mm -hmm. take advantage of what he knew and uh, so yeah i mean i was out of uh, out of uh uh, university couple, but their parents had only primary, secondary school, something like that. Ah, okay. Your grandparents? But, uh, they yeah, did, gran my grandparents. Mm -hmm. But they were of the generation that they understood the value of learning and of school, and they made immense sacrifice for 
their kids, my uncles and my parents, of course, but also my uncles and, and aunts, to, to go to school. And almost everybody went either to university or a very high technical school. Wow, that's so, great. So uh, that was important in the family. And we kind of tried here to, to, to pass that to our kids. And uh, I'm looking at them now and uh, they are happy. And I think they try to pass that yeah. to their own. That's 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 fantastic. Um, Krainik is actually not your original surname, right? No, uh, Romania. It's uh, well, it's it's a Latin country, small Latin country, about thirty million, something like that, in the in, in Eastern Central Europe. Um, and Romanian is a Roman oh, language, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a Roman langu uh, language. It's close to Italian, close to French. It, huge differences at the same time. Um, there are common words even in Portuguese. Yeah. yeah. So we, in a sense, we pronounce our own, we, our, our, our language is easier. Yeah. But it was also surrounded by many other, and a lot of countries around were Slavs, you know, the Hungarians, Polish, Russians later on, uh, the Turks came. So uh, on my father's side, somewhere the family have, still has, some of the deep roots in Poland. So um, on my grandfather was uh, Kosowski. And in fact, I still have my cousins, which are called Kosowski. And now my father, who was uh, at one point, and I was, I don't remember how old, but I was old enough to understand what we were doing. Um, he, dis he wanted to be even more Romanian by name, in a sense. Um, so we selected, he selected, he brought us, and I remember he was talking with my mother, and he, they brought me in the conversation, even if I was very young. And uh, this name, it's uh, come from the center of the country. It's one of the old, very, a very, very old name in Romania uh, there. And so Krainik I am. And um, <laughs> yeah. there, there are meanings and uh, all kinds of things. But, uh, you know, like everybody else, I think everywhere, I'm living in an immigration country and region here in North America, a lot of immigrants from everywhere. But even in a country like Romania, where it's 80% maybe, or core Romanian in a sense, even in those so-called core Romanian, you do have all kinds of uh, linkages. And mm -hmm. if I look at my family, and if you go a little bit up in the tree, I'm in the capital city, but my mother was born in the capital city, my father not, but he came there when he was two or three years old. And if you go on the, you start having roots around in all regions of the country. And yes, there is a huge part, which is ethnic Romanian, if you want to call it like that. But I have a little bit of a, of, of a Polish, I have a little bit of a, of a Hungarian, and I don't know what else, uh, because it didn't really look good. So it's, and, um, I don't know, maybe that prepared me better for life here in North America, where fundamentally, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, possibly. Uh, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's um, anyway, I, I'm, I'm very happy where I am. Yeah, but still talking about your name, uh, your first name, Theodore, uh, does not have an H. No, it doesn't. But I noticed you write your nickname, Theo. Everyone, everyone, yeah. everyone calls you Theo. Uh, with, yeah. with it. And what is the reason behind this convention? Uh -huh. Well, actually, it's a, it, it's, a, it's a long story. Theodore is a very Romanian name, but it's also an Orthodox name, in a sense. So you find it in Greece and in all the Slavic countries around. And 
uh, and it's also in, in the Western Europe, it's, it's written a little bit different. So when I came here, in Romania, has no e, H, has no E at the end, has no accent, it's a purest. When I got here and went through school, uh, in French, you have an H, you have an accent of the, on, a, on an E, and you have an E at the end. And uh, so it was, my name was written in about all sorts of, when I finished a PhD, in fact, I had to go and organize all the diplomas to have it. Standardized. <laughs> However, when I was actually back from, and we maybe spoke, we'll talk about that later, back from the postdoc and actually back at the CRT, uh, we had our first mini computer. Mm. And uh, so the first user names were created. And at the time, I mean, uh, the young ones even don't know what it is. There was less memory than in my telephone now. Uh -huh. And the words were short, so the username were short. So it was Mike in four letters, it was Diane. And they put T-O because it looked nicer with four letters and uh, and it's it's top. This, so this is it. So, so it, it goes back to 80 four something like that mm -hmm. uh, they were calling me Theo when I was in, 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 in university so that's why but it was not officially written any place but once you start to have your username in computer in computers that's it mm -hmm. you don't change any logo. Yeah. so it's uh, but so it's a funny it's it's a funny reason so computers mm -hmm. that's computing, computer science so you told me the other day that when you were about eight years old, you had an eye accident and you went to Vienna for a surgery. Uh, what happened then? Okay, uh, that's also a long story. But so I had the accident and uh, well, they, they, they did what they can. And I had the first intervention in Romania. And uh, the problem is, speaking about the regime, they did not have the technology and the tools to, to actually be able to do what everything they wanted or they knew that could be done. Um, so the, 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 the doctor who was something, somebody very renowned in Romania said, the boy has to go out because there is an infection there and it cannot be treated. So, but it took time. So I was, uh, I arrived the first time in Vienna around 13, 14, something like that, time flies. And I got my, my, my uh, I, I was actually two or three interventions. They stopped, I not, I lost, the, the I was lost any, but they saved the other one, which, and uh, about that time on the, well, maybe the next three, but it was a time where, and I was with my mother there, it was uh, the time when uh, there was a, the Verbal Revolution in Prague and actually the Russians, the communist Russians, the Union, Soviet Union, invaded the Czechoslovakia and Prague. And uh, remember being with my mother in the tram and seeing people cry in the tramway. And actually my mother who was speaking a little bit of German, which I unfortunately I don't, mm -hmm. she she learned about that and uh, people were afraid because actually the Russians had occupied Austria after the war and they just they are, we, we were in the 60s so they were not more than about 10 years since they had left. How old were you? 
about 14 about 14 like okay yeah 13 13 13 14 something mm -hmm. like that so 67 mm -hmm. and uh so then it was uh so my mother asked her herself very deeply if uh, she would actually ask for political mausoleum my father was in romania because they uh, we couldn't leave the three of us because the, uh, the regime didn't want us to be too easy to, to fly so well, it's a long time. So we waited by touring a little bit in Italy. It was my first taste of Italy at the time. Uh, a little bit in, uh, unconscious, uh, unconscious at the time. I mean, mm -hmm. at the, at the age I had. So my mother, seeing that actually the Russians didn't invade Romania as well, she decided to uh, to go back because actually, she, and I remember hearing her and my father kind of quarreling. Why did you come back? Why did you stay? Out? So this is was that the next time I when I had to go and uh, for a for a for a uh, uh, for a verification exam and all that, my father managed to get first time the passport, and this is when when uh, actually 60, it was sixty nine when he uh, asked for political asylum in Italy, and uh, again some very strange decisions, uh, young brains who don't think everything that was me because <laughs> i kind of said to my father in, that look i mean obviously you have to go and obviously i have to return because if i am there i will be able to get out of my mother if i am with you she will never be able to get out and i remember my father looking at me it was about two or three in the morning in vienna before going to italy and she he looked at me and uh, he didn't say anything for a couple of minutes and say, uh, okay. I mean, if you feel it like that, mm -hmm. and this is how we, we did it. And uh, I was lucky. I mean, I was very lucky in my life. I am still very lucky in my mm -hmm. life. But, uh, yeah. It took like two years or something, two years and, and a half, in fact. But we did manage to get out. Yeah. You, you, you guys uh, left to Canada about 50 years ago or so right and 50 beginning of 71 yeah so yeah 50 years so yeah. you were forced to give up your romanian citizenship in yes. the process yes. right yes yes so how did you feel i feel well there were mixed feelings uh i was very happy to leave I, for me it was clear that i had to leave i my mind was made i, I went back only only for to, to get out of there with my mother at my age now i would not do that but when i was you know at, at that age i did and um we, we were uh, that there was an international situation which helped like canada was selling romania want, wanted to buy a nuclear reactor from canada and actually there was a family reunification uh, in the in the cell treaty but i wanted to leave i never in order for us to get the the permission to leave, we had to renounce the Romanian citizenship, my mother as well, by when you were depositing, submitting the paperwork. So you are living in, your, in, in the country by having asked not to be a citizen any longer. And actually, I have a, I have a paper from the National Assembly of Romania, which stripped me of my Romanian citizenship. So now I could have it back, but I have to ask for it. 
and mm. I don't want to ask for it. I didn't ask for to lose it. Mm. They took it away. If they, they want me to have it, let's say offer it and I will take it, but I will not ask for it. Oh. I'm a little bit maybe too proud of something. Okay. My, my wife says that I'm I am too orgullous. Uh, I yeah. don't know a good English word, but Right. Yeah, in Portuguese there's a word orgulhoso. It's uh, Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, one of my earliest memories of Romania is the national soccer team of 1994. I was a big fan of Gheorghe Hagi, uh, and they did actually very well in that World Cup in the U.S. They so did. it was uh, one of the first times I really uh, recall of you know hearing about Romania. Uh, we didn't have internet at, at, at back then, so uh, it was one way of getting to know the country. Um, And then you, when moving to Canada, uh, you joined secondary school, you went straight to yeah. college. How was it? No, actually, uh, I arrived in February. Uh, I arrived mid-February, actually. And I was, compared to, 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 to the school system over there, which is fundamentally the Western Europe system, 444, I was in the third year of the third cycle, which is in the Liceum High School. And I was more or less through the halfway that three, third year, I was one year and a half left. And the way there are things organized here, I could have gone directly to what is college here in Quebec, which is a two year. But then, and again, I told you I'm lucky, um, the the counselor in uh, which, as a new immigrant says, look, there are four or five months left until June. Yes, you have everything to go to the other one, But you just arrived, so you don't really know neither the country nor the system. If you go to secondary school, it's the last year. You have those four or five months. You know that the, the, in terms of academia, you don't have surprises. So there is no problem on that side, but you will know the system. And uh, that's exactly what I did. And uh, Uh, I went, I was very lucky again because I went to a very good school here in Montreal. Uh, you know, like in, in any city where you have a lot of immigrants, you have neighborhoods of the young, the new immigrants come and then go elsewhere. So I was in that neighborhood, but very nearby, it's a very high level, more township neighborhood, in fact. Mm -hmm. And that school was more or less on the border. So I went there. So I, I also met people of a very large social scale in a sense and uh, and I learned how well I start learning how Quebec and Canada and the Western world actually mm -hmm. function at school outside and it was very 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 good uh, so that allowed me to actually start my, my my high school fresh and with from do it do a full cycle high right. school undergrad master mm -hmm. And then yeah, you got yourself busy know. with judo and programming classes. And in fact, there was an interesting motivation for you to take programming classes, right? Well, actually, there, there are several motivations to take uh, programming classes. One is that somehow I discovered, well, I, I won't say discovered, I rediscovered in a sense a science fiction literature because when I was young, younger in Romania. In Romanian, I read already Jules Verne and Wells, mm -hmm. tra tra translated in Romania, in Romanian. Mm -hmm. So I was that kind of eight, 19th century 
sci-fi. Mm -hmm. And then by chance, I, I ended up in French translations of some American uh, classics. Like, actually, it was Van Gogh, which are the books are over just here. Mm -hmm. And Van Gogh and Clark and Asimov, this is what I started. Mm -hmm. So I was very much intrigued. And then in the same time, and, and you know, I discovered that elective courses, that for me it was, and for anybody who was coming from that type of school, totally new because, you know, you go to school in the beginning of the year, you got the list of courses, the list of professors, and you just go through them. And here, yes, they were compulsories. This is fine. But you have the option to choose some. Yeah, but then they are elective. Uh, what, what is that? So you have to discover first what it is. It was before website, so you went in a big room and you saw the names of the courses on the wall and, and you tried to put it on your paper and it was what? Which is introduction to computer programming. And okay, so I took it. So it was, I don't think that we even saw the computer actually. So you are programming, you know, on, on paper and then you gave it and they were reading it. And But you discovered, I discovered computer science in a sense, on a very low, low level. And I remember talking with a colleague that we lost ourselves. We didn't meet after that, but saying, this is what we want to do. And I remember being again crazy mm -hmm. and sending only one application to go to the university because I discovered there is a computer science department in the University of Montreal. And I only went there, which again, retrospectively, was totally crazy. But I was, at, I, I was admitted. So uh, this is how I ended up in a computer science department mm -hmm. where I discovered the operations research exists. Yeah which I didn't know right. about. You mentioned some uh, sci-fi books. Uh, you also are into sci-fi movies, too. Yes, well, yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm a very old uh, Star Trek fan and uh, Star Wars fan. And uh, I'm trying to keep my, 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 my mind open mm -hmm. and um, uh, for from both what is called space opera, which fundamentally Van Vogt and, and, and Star Wars are two to the more convoluted author movies, and not only in sci-fi, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm looking, uh, I'm looking broadly. Mm -hmm. And I started after that to, to read fantasy as well. And yes, I'm a fan of Tolkien. And, uh, uh, that's what I was going to ask exactly that. Kathy and uh, there are there here. A number of things and Ferrer and some others. That's very so, very interesting. Yeah. yeah. But you were mentioning, uh, yeah. you have your first contact with OR uh, during the undergrad. Do you remember the yes. occasion? Yes, actually, the computer science department. Now we are talking seventy three mm -hmm. about, and uh, it was has been created about ten twelve years before at the end of the sixties, and it was. So they had those idea, there were four groups in there, computer, theoretical computer science, numerical analysis, uh, uh, numerical statistics, and operations research. And we were supposed to have plus mathematics, and okay? We had to, supposed to have an introduction to everything. And that was like the half of the undergrad, first year and half of the secondary, having that. So my first course was Introduction to Operations Research with Jean-Marc Rousseau, 
who later became my, my, my supervisor, master and PhD. And, uh, and this is why I discovered OR in general, modeling mm -hmm. in particular, and then math prog as well, because you have actually to solve what will you model. But, uh, and I finally, by the second year of my undergrad, kind of down on me that this is uh, the, the field I want to work in for the rest of my life. Right. So doing masters, it was very natural for you so then. After that, it was the natural. So I, uh, I choose the, 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 even in undergrad, we were more on the, so at one point you, you split. So you were more in or broadly OR and, and the numerical statistics. And then you go to the master. So you had a lot of OR and a little bit of statistics, and then you go to, to PhD, but I have a PhD in computer science with operations research specialty because at the time you how they were doing it but your research during the masters was very interesting during the master i worked on uh, a crew uh, airline crew scheduling pilot crew scheduling we did should i say ad hoc heuristic column generation why not uh, <laughs> yeah missing totally what martin de rocher found like what eight or nine years after which is the shortest path with resource constraints mm -hmm. which is uh, the the beautiful way to actually generate those columns right nowadays but uh yeah so i worked on on that at the master level but then i i, I switched for the phd mm -hmm. and i worked on what is what has what is now anyway service network design for planning, tactical planning of railroad, freight railroads. And I worked, uh, the railroad was not really financing the project. Okay, just to, so, uh, but we were meeting with them and I had data from them and they were very open and uh, mm -hmm. they didn't use it at the end because at the time they were not ready to, and, and maybe we're not, we didn't know how to sell it at the time. <laughs> but, um, so this is how I moved to my PhD thesis on, on service network design. Mm -hmm. You, I assume you're coding everything in Fortran back then? We were in Fortran, yes. We okay. coded in Fortran, uh, and yes. Coding and, uh, optimization uh, algorithms uh, can be very tricky. Uh, you rely on your supervisor, colleagues, or you, okay. you know how Well, you... I... Uh, I had the benefit of of the Montreal setting and the fact that we were in the Center for Research for Transportation and my 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 supervisor at the time was he had become the director. So somehow with and we what we do right we continue to do it. So we not even if we don't work necessarily in teams, we make sure that we have a sufficient resources for our students to do well so my supervisor at the time and uh, i have an idea how after that i learned exactly but he had somebody uh, who was uh, a professional and actually he uh, he to to work with his students and with his own projects outside of that because he was actually working later on he opened uh, giro the company so they were working on that side and 
a little bit of time to help the students. So uh, my coding, for example, that uh, that professional did a good part of it, and I did I code I coded the core at one point, which was actually to take care of the nonlinear part of the model. So it was, if I remember correctly, a projected gradient method, something like that. <laughs> so I coded that, and he coded the, uh, around that, and uh, uh, the, 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 what was, in fact, a math heuristic at the time. We didn't even have the name mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. And just to, for example, that code, including with what I put in there, then helped another PhD student, Jacques, who is now a professor in HSA here. He did a, a PhD like a two years and a half, almost three, later than me on, on, on the same topic, but more on a uh, on tracking and uh, more on the quantitative management part, more mm -hmm. operations management part. So he took the model and the code and actually was able to do a very beautiful thesis. So uh, the center uh, was very helpful for a lot for us. And I think for the Montreal. Yeah, so you had a very good environment that uh, allowed yes. you to develop and uh, overcome and we any that, We have professionals that we get together and we they are there and we pay them in order for the students to have access and we the equipment. Yeah, that's yeah. excellent. Uh, you were pretty busy doing your PhD. Uh, for example, you were in, even involved with the creation of the Students' <laughs> Union. <laughs> well, somehow, uh, at the university level, there was that idea that to, to federate the various unions. And in the department, in, at the graduate level, there was no union. Now, I was a very good friend that you very well know, Michel Gendreau, and okay. actually we were quite involved with the department. And, uh, and at one point, we were representing students without having any organizations. and. Uh, on, on the department committee, and I, I was later on me uh, on the on the university, not council, but uh, assembly. And then we, when I when we saw that movement in the university, I said, let's organize that. And uh, so we organized a union. Yes, a graduate <laughs> student union. I was there for about two years, two years and a half until I was toward the end of the PhD, and I I was on a certain number of bodies within the university. Michelle was a little bit longer, but she mm -hmm. stayed longer and uh, was younger. Uh, he's younger than I am, so he stayed longer. Right. But it was a very interesting period. Uh, and this is, I think, where we also got, well, a couple of characteristics, I think, that m both me and Michelle have, which is, one, we, we acknowledge the value of the organization and the fact that as individuals, we work for us, but we also have to work for the organization. And that came to us both from the CRT, which is exactly that, and from the university and the union. And actually, yes, you represent the students, but it's not necessarily a fight because the university has to has to prosper and to, mm -hmm. to work. So that was uh, 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 on one side. And the other one is, yeah, well, I mean, we like managing and we, we like getting mixed up in too many things. And... I mean, that's why I became director, Michel became director, then he became director of his own department, of his department later on. So, yeah. Yeah, maybe uh, being involved yeah. with the union helped you, de uh, helped you to develop some uh, skills and abilities. Uh, that... yeah, well, yeah, but also the, the willingness to do it. And uh, 
Yeah, I don't know. Right. Yeah, it's both a duty and a pleasure in a sense, uh -huh. even if we, we don't like it every day. Yeah. Yeah. You finished your PhD uh, around 1982. Uh, yes. Your papers came uh, a bit late though, right? Yeah, yes. Well, I think I was the last generation of, at least in Montreal, uh, around here, where you do your thesis and then you write your papers. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I start to write my papers while I was during the, the postdoc and I finish the, the, the thesis papers once I got back to Montreal before we, I start doing something else. So I ended up publishing three papers of the PhD. I even published one paper after the master thesis, which like six years after that. <laughs> Well, wow. uh, I remember, I mean, both me and not only me, but my, my colleagues and the professor, which are around, nobody talked at the time that you should publish while you work. We start talking and I remember that we were talking towards the end and should we move to that? I, I think that in the States, they had, they had started mm -hmm. to do that in, in certain places. Uh, and for example, we, we mentioned, uh, uh, there was Che Martin later on with his uh, work on co column generation, and he was one of the first to actually be paper-based. So you publish the papers and then you put together the thesis. Oh, oh, so, okay. it was, so it was that epoch where, uh, yeah, so this is what it happened. Nowadays, we train our students to, to, to publish as, we, as they work. and. Um, not everybody works at the same speed, but this is how uh, how we want to I, how how it is the world today. This is how it is. But in your opinion, time. what is more suitable? It all depends how you how you supervise. I've seen so many theses theses where at the end you try to put it together into a thesis and to find you know the the storyline to bring everything together. So if you kind of have a topic and you decide the topic with a student and your colleagues from the beginning, this is this is a topic. And then if you start like that, quite naturally from the beginning, you see, especially with a little bit of experience, you see how that could be not partitioned, but actually Take, taken in stride by decomposing, like you decompose a, a complex model in mm -hmm. a sense, you decompose it into, oh, that's something that we should look first and that the second, knowing perfectly well that actually you'll, you'll do dynamic management in, uh, uh, as it advances because new topics will rise and new questions and and actually, you also see more what is best or more appropriate for the student. But you have that vision for the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem is more if when you start with a with a with a contract financing stuff, where you and I saw that in Europe a lot with the EU, EU contracts where the students start working on the contracts or the or the EU projects that you have to deliver. I well, anyway, I don't want to get into those, but I mean, uh, sometimes mm -hmm. it's not necessarily the best planning. So planning is everything. It's a, 
here in Montreal with us is a joke because even it's a household joke here with my wife because planning is everything. We did that all our life. We plan, but in a sense it is. So you look ahead and you look at the topic and okay. So even when you work in a partnership with a company, you look at the project and you, you, you have to protect your students from go, going consultants. Mm -hmm. So you, you have, we, we go, this is bad. So you have to, to actually plan a little bit and knowing that you'll change the plan as you go, uh, but it is doable. Mm -hmm. So doing a thesis with three meta heuristic for CVRP, yes, there are a lot of them. They are not very high in my, uh, in my scale. Right. Yeah. Uh, after completing your PhD, you went for a couple of postdocs, the first one in Italy, the second one at MIT. Right. Then you came back uh, yes. to Montreal later. I was very happy in MIT. Um, I had friends, both new friends and funnily enough, some people from Montreal uh, that I knew and were still friends uh, about with people that I, I met there. And I was going to stay another year and then eventually I will, you know, start looking around. And then I got a call from, from, from a professor of mine, not, not my supervisor, but Michael Florian, Mike Florian, who happens to, to have been born in Romania too, but he left when he was four. So, uh, uh, so he speaks like three, three words of Romanian. His mother who died, unfortunately, about 10 years ago. He was Interesting. Yeah. But anyway, so he, he was my teacher and on a network and network flow. And uh, he had a big project starting collab international collaboration in Brazil. Mm. Brazil. <laughs> nice. And, uh, so he, he called me and he said, I need somebody young like you to, to assist and help both manage a project and do the and, and the research and the students who will be there. So it was an opportunity once in a lifetime. I told you I'm very lucky. And uh, so I returned to Montreal as a researcher in the CRT. Uh, so that was 83. And that with this project, uh, we, we went to Brazil. So I went to Brazil for about 10 years, at least once a year. We did beautiful wow. work with colleagues there. We, we met people from the government, from the industry, and we work with JPOT which is uh, an institute of the Ministry of Transportation mm -hmm. uh, of Brazil. We were Puki in, Mon in, in Rio, uh -huh. um, that's the Catholic University yes, of Rio. Yes. Rio. Uh, and um, with students, we created a software, which after that was commercialized. So it was a beautiful period and a beautiful work and beautiful output. And then I got a chance about 85, to have a one-year invitation as invited professor in, in UCAM. And in 86, they offered me a, a job, mm -hmm. a tenure track mm -hmm. job. And then again, it was very hard to, 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 to say no, because uh, at that time, we were out of the eight-year recession, if, you, if any, everybody remembers or anybody remembers. And there were almost no hiring in operations research. Mm. In fact, uh, here in Montreal, it created a, a whole generational hole in, in, in operations research. Mm. So uh, 
I started as a professor in 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 come in the in the in the department of uh, management and business administration actually the name changed and everything yeah and after and, that you uh, started a collaboration on, on on the brazilian project so um while doing also work on on service network design at the same time and continue working on what becomes done which is strategical planning uh, of freight transportation at the national level yeah right uh, i'm very uh happy to know that you had this connection with brazil uh that's that's very nice uh but after that you started a collaboration with china in the early 90s yes, yes. and that is again uh i mean luck luck has it a, a good friend and a colleague he's Professor of geography, numerical geography, because he's very quantitative, quantitative geography, I think it would be a better term, in University of Montreal. And he was a member of the CRT and uh, PhD in geography, University of Hong Kong. And uh, he speaks Mandarin, a little bit for Cantonese, not much, but here he does. Mm -hmm. And again, it was he put together a very large project he knew the people in, in in Shanghai and a very large project financed by the Canadian Co International Cooperative Agency, um, Cooperation Agency, with a university in Shanghai, university which is directed towards transportation. And the big project was create a center there, transfer knowledge, both managerial and scientific, equip them, train, have exchanges, do things together. So we created a research center, kind of a CRT type of research center. Uh, even our management people, uh, administrative officer trained their officers there. We, we brought equipment, we brought software, we had students, we did a number of projects. And again, in the 90s, starting in 1990, and I went to China almost again, uh, at least a year. Yeah, I was traveling a lot, I'm still yeah. traveling. Uh, at least once a year to, to China. So we saw China changing and Shanghai changing. There was no Pudong at the time. On the other side of the Huangpu River was a, a village. Uh -huh. And now there is a mega city and yeah. you, have a, uh, you have the magnetic train going there. So you witnessed the transformation. Uh... We witnessed the transformation and uh, we trained people. And there was uh, the, 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 the very hard epoch of the of the of the repression in China, the Tiananmen Square, when actually the Chinese there is still a dictatorship in China, a very bloody yeah. one, and actually they they quench the, the 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 student movement and many people died. Yes. And, uh, the, the, no students were allowed to leave any longer, and the ones who were there, they didn't want to go back. Yeah, it was a very so, sad incident. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, but. You know, with a with a colleagues and a professor, we continue and uh, somehow we continued our collaborations and yeah, uh, yeah that was uh, that that was a beautiful time as well. That's I mean, great. A beautiful. I mean, people are nice everywhere, and China is a beautiful yeah. country. Now you have a regime, and you we all know what's happening now uh, down there. So you just mentioned CRT. Uh, yes. You also became a, the director of CRT uh, in the 90s and for eight years. In 91, I took over the directorship of the CRT after after Gilbert. So it was 
well, uh, the beginning of the 71, somebody who did a couple of months, and it was Mike Florian, then it was uh, uh, Jean-Marc Rousseau, then it was Gilbert, then it was me, then Michel, then Bernard. Wow. Now it's... Uh, <laughs> Sounds like a dream team. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not a, it's not a bad, it's not a bad <laughs> section director there. Uh, so yeah, I took over in 91, and uh, the, the rules of the CRT, uh, we, we are joking at the CRT that we have the same rules as the American Republic has, uh, not more than two mandates. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I did my eight years as, as a director of the, of the CRT. And uh, yes, we did a number of things during that time. We, uh, we changed from pure University of Montreal towards more universities and already Gilbert has worked. So the business school and Polytechnic has entered and later on the other ones got after me, but we worked on them then. We uh, moved to, to, to parallel computing and we, well, we created a, a group of centers with the Center of Mathematics, with, with Gerard and that. With that, we created the first network of high high power computing uh, in Quebec and then which became later part of the Compute Canada network and now there is a very big network. So yeah, it was a time of change. There was a time of financial hardships as well because there were less money and well anyway, we had to, to do a, a number of management issues. So, uh, but science was also great and um, it was a big China project and Towards the end, so uh, we we welcomed a lot of people. Towards the end of the 90s, this is when I started to go back to Italy and to renew my uh, connections. Not my friendships, because the friendships were already there, but my scientific right. contacts and work. And this is where we, towards the end uh, of the 90s, we started yeah. to work with logistics. You Right. You mentioned uh, your efforts on parallel computing. I think it's important to talk about your contributions uh, in the use of parallel computing in OR. Uh, I suppose there were many challenges uh, when you started working in this field. Can you comment uh, about it? Well, yes. Actually, when we started uh, in Montreal, we started, it was me and Mike Florian. We, we, we were interested into that. He more on the equilibrium part, me more on the network design part and stuff like that. And we, we were interested because we had those big problems where you have a lot of, and you can decompose and you can do a lot of things. And it was like, oh, if I can decompose and I can gain time. And the, then the industry was moving and it was very interesting because you had like two words in there. One was a high power one which was uh, Wall Street, the Pentagon, and the, the guys who are actually uh, doing uh, weather forecasts, and they had those big machines, uh, the, um, the central memories, HPs, and the, the con connection machine, and the CDC uh, Express 10,000, something like that, which we ended up having one. Mm -hmm. And the, at the other end, there were the little parallel on a, on, on a board, so four chips on a board that you put on something which was a desk computer at the generation 18. So obviously at the time, at the beginning, it was very difficult to say that you buy a big machine in Montreal. I mean, there was one in the 
the the the environment canada the ones who are doing the 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 weather forecast and they were close to the airport so we started with those blades into the desk computer and hard to to buy in montreal so me and mike sent two very young master students ismail chabini and and uh, and bernard gendron to cambridge close to mit they both ended and to MIT later on, mm-hmm. buy those and bring them back in their car. I'm not <laughs> sure how, how legal it was as importing stuff was. So we created a little lab in, in the CRT, putting blades in a computer, and we put so too many blades that actually it was overheating. So we took the case out, put the fans to, to, to cool it down. And this is how we started message, message passing Fundamentally, where we were not doing what they were doing on the big ones, where we, you decompose the problem into very small pieces, like the guys in MIT, like you know the uh, Daniels and the Vladimiru and uh, the others were doing, but actually working on chunkiest, more chunkier decomposition, which are more natural for our type of problems, and uh, well, Daniels move and the computers improve and then we I became the director about that time we create started to create those groups of university research centers we did a lot of stuff on more on the on also on on intelligent markets but then we the main trust was to to build that high power computing which were needed by the mathematicians the physicists, applied physicists, and the meteorologists. So we bought those, and actually, the machines came at late '99. I finished my my directorship on uh, at the end of the academic year, so uh, on the 31 of May uh, and '99. Michel mm-hmm. took over as director. The machines, of course, came when my my Michel was director uh, towards the end of the '99. So they organized me. Uh, uh, Bye bye, thank you party, something like that. Feral party, gift, which is that huge CDC ten thousand machine, which was up in a in a in a controlled room, and they, they put a ribbon around it and a red ribbon, and uh, it was very touchy and very 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 nice. And yeah, well, everything else is history after that. Right, my uh, first uh, paper in the international or journal uh, appeared in CNOR, and it was a parallel algorithm. Uh, for the VRP with simultaneous pickup and delivery. And uh, I remember uh, I was doing a, a course on parallel computing with uh, uh, Professor Lucia Drummond. She's yeah. actually the wife of Eduardo Shoa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then she mentioned specifically your name. Then you should look at uh, his papers. Uh, you know, ah, there's this guy, Krennic, from Canada. Uh, he's doing a lot uh, on parallel computing and parallel algorithms. In, in for optimization and so on and yeah. that's where i first heard of of your name and i came across your work uh and i mean you're talking about four you know uh cores uh you know four actually four processors and at at that time we are we are already doing experiments with 256 cores so to see how things evolved over time and uh yeah it took a while i mean it, it, what we did it actually when we had that CDC uh, uh, 10,000 machine, it was 
64 cores. Wow. Uh, but those are uh, those are machines with 64 bits long words as well. Mm -hmm. So anyway, and at the time, uh, as I was saying, at the time we started to build the network. So uh, in another university, they they put together the cluster of what the type of machine that you are talking about. Yeah. So then when we started to code here and execute somewhere else which uh, we still do actually i mean not me actually the students do uh nowadays but yeah remotely you can access yeah, remote, this yeah. is how a lot of things started uh you know i told you that two young master students went to, to cambridge to bring the blades back now ismail was mike's phd student and actually after that he went to be a professor in mit and bernard was my uh, became my phd student after that and yes, he went to do a postdoc in MIT and come back and be a professor in University of Montreal right now. So, uh, and uh, a lot of the work that I did on parallel computing on exact methods, I did with Bernard. Mm -hmm. And on the other side, I did a lot of work on uh, meta heuristic, parallel meta heuristic, and behavior of parallel algorithms and mm -hmm. really emergent computing and stuff. Like yeah, that. yeah. Yeah, I'm familiar with some of that work. Uh, Learning also, in parallel computing, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you were also involved together with other colleagues uh, with the creation of two important conferences, Tristan and Odysseus. Uh, tell me about their story. Ah. Well, we, we, we were participating in, in, in meetings and we, we meaning about the people who are in the community about my age nowadays and we're meeting and we're talking and we were dissatisfied with the fact that the presentations were short more or less droning in in a very big you know orsa teams that was before informs or iforce conference or stuff like that and then we started dreaming of having a conference for us and there was an the example of Isolde on the on the location analysis uh, on the location part. Yeah. And then we started to talk about creating a similar conference for for transportation. I said it has to be called Tristan. And when I'm saying us, we, there was a group more or less floating, but it was yeah. Well, I mean, me, I was there. Michelle was around. Warren Powell, Hani Mahmasani was there, Martin Labbe was in there, uh, Marius Solomon was around. Uh, so not all the people all the time, but we're talking about that. And then we, 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 we met at one of the French conferences. They know how to organize social dinners. And it was at the end of the social dinner, I remember, at the Lutetia Hotel in Paris. And we had a couple of bottles of champagne, and they were around the table. And um, I think I still have the menu, and we wrote on that. And we, we say, the conference will be called Tristan. And it was will be on freight transportation and logistics. Okay, now, what exactly Tristan means? Okay. You know what the conference, the scope, and you know the name. And then we played of it, and I, I still have it somewhere. And it's so this is how a triennial conference 
on network analysis came out and uh, Trista and uh, and of network something like that mm -hmm. and this is how it went and we wanted to have it we also knew because we had many other conferences smaller ones that if you do it too often you lose uh, you lose bringing something new a new contribution and the goal was it still is to talk about the latest research and to have a forum an agora in the greek sense of the term to meet to exchange to challenge and to be challenged to create new uh shake hands and bonds and teams and and and, and groups and mm -hmm. uh and to do it in a nice place, in a sense. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is what Tristan was. What about Odysseus? And, and yeah, well, Odysseus came after three Tristans. When we realized that Tristan is very successful, and it's so successful that we had to put a cap on how big it becomes, and the cap is still there, no more than three parallel sessions. But three times all transportation. So then at one point we were talking, we said, uh, ah, but we do so much work in freight transportation. Why don't we organize something smaller at the beginning on freight? And uh, so we were talking with some German colleagues and they had a, 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 and say, let's organize something. We, we, we were not talking, uh, thinking about something long term. So let's organize one for for freight and we did it in chania and crete uh, uh, and when we were there and i seen that martin was there at one point i remember i remember being in the water uh at lunchtime because you know it was greece so the water is great and looking upward that and we said why don't we do that a little bit more often, but not too often. <laughs> so again, the three years came and not the same year as Isolde and not the same year as Tristan. And uh, we say, so let's having move a little bit less. So let's stay around the Mediterranean. And uh, we are three, we are transportation. We move. Well, Odysseus was moving and he moved for a long time. Mm -hmm. He was searching and finding all kinds of stuff. So this is how Odysseus was stuck, and we are moving around in a very large Odyssey, uh, Odyssean, Homeric, if you want, uh, space. Yeah. From Atlantic to the Black Sea. Yeah, I'm even part of the Committee of Odysseus now for the second time, and it's a very interesting conference. Uh, uh, and yeah. the one in Algier, uh, in, in Tangier, will be very interesting. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that you never worked on routing until the late 90s. Yeah, what made you change your mind? Yeah, well, there are so many very good people who are working on routing everywhere, and including we had a very a number of very 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 good ones in Montreal. Uh, just Michel and Gilbert to mention only two. There were others. So my opinion was, what the heck? Another VRP guy in Montreal, come on. Uh, but then I start working on city logistics. And then this came naturally because in city logistics, you have part of the system and modeling, which goes the, the service network design way, but they're also a very important part, which is 
actually last mile delivery first mile pickup and everything in between and uh, with my italian friends and colleagues who, who with whom i started working on that uh even the, the first models had the routing inside it, but it was a different type of routing in a sense still routing mind you but by looking at our problem we already from the beginning had origin destination demand so it was not products that we can substitute uh we had time dependencies we had multi-tools we had synchronization in there uh so multi-commodities also in type of product multi-product multi-commodity okay so several fleets so all of a sudden you realize that you have to push in in different ways and actually say oh but i can have clearly several levels tiers echelons call them whatever you like to call mm -hmm. them so this is how i came to work on that and working on that well you start pushing in the parallel in the meta heuristic then you have the parallel optimization for those and the 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 the, the work uh, on so that work on uh, integrative integrative search mm -hmm. and this is how Thibaut Vidal came to do a PhD thesis on vehicle routing with me and Michelle and Christian Prince. Yeah. Now I am working on VRP on special cases of VRP, but uh, mm -hmm. you mentioned uh, the name of uh, two great researchers that yeah. uh, you co-supervised, Bernard Gendron and and Thibaut Vidal. Thibaut Vidal is a great friend of mine. He he was even here as a guest. Um, what makes them different? Uh, did they challenge you? And also uh, talking about students. Uh, what do you usually do when you think uh, you're not extracting the best from an average student? Some people will say I'm bad. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay, two things here. Any student who gets at the graduate level, unless he, he or she bought his way inside, which I don't believe it happened, especially at the PhD level, once you pass the exams and everything, and at some point, most of them are good. Now, some of them are exceptionally good. Some of them, maybe they, the exams were the last and they reached that level of maximum level, but you, you do have a few, but you do have a few exceptional ones. The exceptional ones, you notice them quite early because they have they have a, a capability of integration and synthesis. They have a capability of out of the box thinking. Uh, and yes, once you you point to them that this is not the right way to do it, they never repeat the error. They learn very fast, which means that normally by the by the half of the second paper, they should be, be before me, and I'm running after. I'm still guiding, I'm still giving, but I'm learning from them as much as they learn from me. Okay. Which I believe and were the case of Thibault and Bernard. That happened. And by the way, you know, a, a good PhD thesis is three papers. Bernard, I think I had, they had, both of them, they have, I don't know, between six and eight, I don't even remember how many. 
yeah. because they they create. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the more programming you need to do, the less you can do because it takes time. But they create, so it's also but it's a quality and and producing. Uh, I think that some colleagues don't get they get very good, but never an exceptional. I'm exceptionally lucky. I had two exceptional ones. And, and a, a, a many many very good ones, but I have those two exceptional ones. And sorry for the uh, the other ones. I'm not. I don't want to insult anybody. But uh, I had I had pleasure with all my students, even the ones with which I fought at some point. Because yes, you do fight at one point. Really? Uh, well, yes, because you have to challenge them, and uh, and you ex at one point that they challenge you and uh, you have to fight even culturally at one point oh okay I'm born in Romania mm -hmm. so half trained in Romania a little well, 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 I don't know quarter in Romania otherwise I'm North American okay where we we, we are with our students we come from here you discuss mm. Of course, respect has to be there both ways, clearly. But you, you you expect them to kind of okay. You teach them, they bring them back, maybe more or less rapidly, and 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 you expect to have a dialogue. Research is about dialogue. If I'm not dialoguing, if I'm not exchanging with my student, I'm hiring a, a professional. Mm -hmm. That's a big difference. Mm -hmm. Now. In some cultures, the, the young are brought up, and in school, they never question. You don't question your professor. Yeah, they are trained to follow rules. And, yeah, and, and not to say no. Mm -hmm. You know, I was joking with my, my, my well, she left on, on, last, on last Sunday. She's Chinese. She went back to China after being a postdoc. And we were joking because we, we, we had a beautiful time that last year. And I told her, now you, you, you did three years and a half in Holland for a PhD. You did one year and something here with us. You go back to China, you have to learn to say no again. She started <laughs> laughing because, you know, and you get students from Iran, you get students from China. They are very good, but they will never ch challenge you. And in, in the beginning, before you learn that you have to do things, you know, you are saying, okay, this is why this is, this is not good. This is something, a work that you have to do is the first exam. It's a synthesis. This is why it's not good. This is good, but this is not good. So normally you expect to get a second version improved. No, they threw everything to the garbage can and wrote something new. Okay. So, so we had to learn. And again, I'm saying we, because I'm not alone to learn how to go over that. Uh -huh. So at one point you ask, how do you go? And you have to tell them, and in a sense, my way, I'm telling them exactly how I feel. And if I don't feel good, if I don't feel that we have a good understanding, that we don't exchange well, I'm very open with them. Oh, okay. This, this is how I am. Mm -hmm. This is how I act. Here it goes, here it doesn't. I think that you could do more. I know that you could. I mean, I know that you could do more. On the other hand, we are not. I mean, this is not a poor life marriage. 
mm-hmm. not obliged to go to the end. Sometimes uh, they're just too respectful and yeah. You know. So let's 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 can we work? And eventually, yes. Most of the time, most of the time, things go well. So happy ending. Uh, it's the usual happy outcome. Ending, almost all the time. I mean, yeah. there have been one or two cases where the endings were not happy. <laughs> but, uh, Oh, but most of the time, there are uh, happy endings. Right. Uh, so let's talk about the future. Uh, I know you've done a lot of work in the last two decades in routing and you know transportation logistics and so on. Yeah. Uh, but thinking about the future, uh, you told me you sympathize with the idea of digital intelligence. Can you elaborate more on this topic? Yes. Well, huh. there is a lot of talk. I mean. Even informs we, we, we went from OR to analytics, which is already actually taking stock of the fact that it's not only optimization in there, that there is, there is also understanding and the data. And uh, so, and then we talk about data science, and then and then we talk about artificial intelligence, and then we talk about Industry 4.0 and smart city as integration. And now, in our field, I mean. And I'm talking with people in, in computer science and engineering, and uh, in our groups here because we, we are we are in those groups. And yes, there are core knowledge, and there is things that you know you have OR in the in in, in, in an artificial network, and you might take an artificial network and use it in a decision support system, and. So what I believe, and actually I'm not the only one, I, I, I talk around and I, I see people and even that the, the, the numerical, the, the intelligence, it actually you have that, you have to understand the problem and you have to understand the, and the data and, and the behavior. And that from that you have to predict the predictive part, so is understanding the predictive and then is the normative, and the, you should not. Not only you should not have any walls in there, but there is a continuum, and you have even. So now we can t- talk statistics, or you can talk deep learning, machine, or you know, or and and then it can be used in a different parts. And then when you apply something, maybe this is what is most important. That actually, you know, long distance medical diagnosis you don't optimize anything i mean don't optimize your diagnosis you observe and then you from what you learn you have to take out and tell something but you but you optimize a schedule you optimize a network the learning is important and the learning and the data and the and the predictions if you if you have scrappy predictions you will have scrappy crappy optimization but there is this continuum and I think that more and more our students as the students who are doing more management or more engineering or more computer science they should be aware of what is left right front and back because they will need to work together and nobody will learn everything I mean there is just too much but at least be aware, be aware of what it can bring you, 
be, be aware of what you have like maybe now an envelope push on it this is how you get breakthrough mm-hmm. but there is somewhere and there is the other guy or lady at the other end so yeah i believe in that and uh, mo- moving towards more automation of a number of things uh which needs all that right uh, you know i mean we build we build a telecom network most of the messages move by themselves by themselves <laughs> in there okay not yet in most other things so yes mm-hmm. uh yeah you also market? told me that in your opinion modeling is still a key component when it comes to problem solving oh yes i mean problem solving means that you you need to have a problem so either somebody gives you a problem this is what we did in primary school mm-hmm. or you have to actually build it that's modeling well it's everything that we just said from the problem environment from the problem setting understanding that talking with the appropriate people the data the transformation the behavior and then what exactly is the problem because you know everything is and everything and you know the the butterfly here and yeah okay so but never i mean the builder the mother of all models forget about that so what is the problem big small but define it and then you want to solve well we are mathematicians here we build a mathematical object it might be on the computer if you do simulation it's in anyway it, it will end up in a computer if you want to solve anything but so modeling it's important and it's important as a link between the world and the algorithm Mm -hmm. and we have to understand that and to be open-minded when we write the models Uh, don't write a model to fit your preferred solution method write the the best model you could for the problem you'll have biases anyway, so they will be in there anyway. Mm-hmm. So even your bias will move toward that. But try not to do it explicitly and then look at it and decide what will be best. And if your hammer is not the best, well, reach out to a colleague and have two, two hammers on the problem. Right. Well, until uh, uh, that was uh Great conversation. I, I, I wish we could go on for hours, but uh, we had to stop at some point. Uh, so it was fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it has been thank great. Thank you very much for doing, as I said, it's, I don't know what each of us brings, but eventually I hope that all of us, in a sense, brings a little bit of a memory of the, of the profession, an image of the profession. And maybe it attracts some, some, some young ones. Absolutely, yeah. On, on, on us. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, let's let's keep in touch. I, I hope you can visit us at some point here. And I do hope. Yes, I'm. Uh, I, I want to go back to Brazil. Yeah, I'm, you're most uh, welcome, for sure. Yeah. Okay yeah. then. So take yeah. care. Thank you very much. Thank you very much Bye. too. Bye. Ciao. Ciao.